for Arizona Public Media. I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. I'll talk with journalist Andrew Morantz about the influence that racists and other hate groups have built through social media. Morantz wrote Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. And in the concluding episode of Youth Crossing Gender Borders, Examining the Roots of Transphobia. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. A nonfiction bestseller that made many readers 10 best lists for 2019 is Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. It details more than three years of research and investigation by New Yorker reporter Andrew Morantz into groups promoting racism and hate speech through social media. And beyond just interacting with them online, Morantz met with many group members in real life. He will talk about his experiences on February 13th at the Gallagher Theater in Tucson as a guest speaker for the Elizabeth Liebson Holocaust Remembrance Lecture. I began by asking Andrew Morantz if he found it difficult to infiltrate these groups. I covered a range from what's called the alt-light to the alt-right, you know, so uh, the more hardcore alt-right would be, you know, the sort of full-fledged anti-Semitic overt white nationalist types. And those people, it was kind of hard to infiltrate, as you say, especially given that I'm Jewish, which is not a, a fact they always picked up on. Um, but uh, when they did, it was it was a little tough to gain their trust. When they didn't, it was kind of absurd because their whole job is to be <laughs> professional anti-Semites and they couldn't even tell who was Jewish and who wasn't. But that's another story. So you didn't necessarily ever obfuscate the fact that you were Jewish? No, no, I didn't, you know, I didn't lie about anything, certainly when I was asked. Um, there's information you maybe lead with, information that you maybe don't. But um, that said, you know, there were times when I was in a, a room where I sort of thought, okay, if I volunteer all the information that I could in response to this question, you know, I might get sort of kicked out or, or worse. So um, I was a little bit aware of that in the back of my head. But in, in many other situations, through a combination of, you know, playing to people's narcissism or their desire to get press coverage or, or a certain sheen of legitimacy, and also just through hanging around and sheer persistence, um, I was able to get a lot more access to these worlds than I was ever kind of expecting to. Did you come forth with the idea that you were a journalist working on this as a story? Oh, yeah, yeah. People definitely knew what I was doing, and they definitely questioned my motives. Um, they thought, I think, largely accurately, you know, why are we letting this guy in? Um, he w works for the quote-unquote, you know, liberal establishment media, and he's probably going to be hostile to our interests. In fairness to them, that was true. I was largely hostile to their interests, not that I, you know, made anything up or, or lied about them, but I didn't have to. You know, I, I think they often reveal themselves to be hypocrites or liars or bigots or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, there were a few moments where, you know, because I was embedded for about three years with this spectrum of bad guys from the Internet. And often I would be sitting down to a dinner or getting 
drinks with someone and, you know, I'd be with a kind of group of people and someone in the group would say, wait a minute, why are we letting this guy in still? Like, why is he always hanging around? And I would just generally sort of let the moment pass. And then someone either would come to my defense or would just sort of say, oh, you know, leave him alone. Uh, I'm sure he's harmless. And I would sort of bite my tongue. But in my head, I was kind of thinking like, you know, that guy makes a point. <laughs> hmm. So you were going from being just online to being IRL in real life with these folks. Yeah, it was pretty it was pretty IRL the whole time. I always knew that given the kind of reporting I like to do, it just would not have been possible for me to report this book from the internet. Even though it's a book about the internet, um and obviously a huge amount of the research I did when it came to archival research and stuff took place online. You know, I really wanted to be in these rooms where these things were happening, both when when they got together and kind of had their various parties and functions. Um the scene that, that opens the book is uh, an inauguration party in early 2017 called the Deplora Ball, uh, which is a, a pun on the phrase basket of deplorables, which is their um, kind of big coming out party to the world. Um, I definitely wanted to be there for that and for a lot of various quasi-public events like that um, going forward. But I also wanted to be there uh, behind the scenes, you know, when these people were um doing their live streams or they're making their podcasts or, you know, just sort of sitting at their laptops and using their kind of self-taught um, expertise to kind of break open the systems of democracy that the rest of us had sort of taken for granted. Um, so I thought I, I could see the results of it and the repercussions of it if I were just sort of standing outside it. But in order to peel back the curtain a little bit, I felt like I had to really be there looking over their shoulder. Well, a common perception of the internet is that anonymity fuels a lot of the vitriol, that these people, while hidden behind a username and an avatar, can go places that they probably wouldn't in real life. But how true would you say that is, based on your experience? Yeah, there is that notion. I mean, going back to the old New Yorker cartoon, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Yes, that, um, I know that one well. <laughs> yeah, that that definitely is an active uh, phenomenon for sure, and there there are lots of big debates uh, in this space over whether anonymity is a problem or whether it's kind of a, a sunlight, ask, you know, acting as the best disinfectant and all that sort of stuff. Certainly, there are many disinhibiting factors that play into online activity, and anonymity is one of them. But I don't think it's as simple as saying, you know, if people weren't anonymous, they wouldn't behave this way. Um, Speaking of kind of peeling back the curtain and, and going behind the scenes and stuff, I spend a lot of time uh, in the book not only embedding myself with the people I call the gate crashers, who are um, propagandists or trolls or, or bigots on the Internet, but I also spend a lot of time uh, with the people I call the new gatekeepers, who are the Silicon Valley titans, really, who have kind of reinvented and disrupted how all information exchange works uh, in this modern era. And those are kind of the two kind of strange bedfellows of the book. And, uh, the subtitle, you know, the title is Antisocial. The subtitle is Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. Uh, the idea being that, that that hijacking of the conversation would not have been possible without both pieces, both the, the online extremists and also the techno-utopians. And the reason I, I bring that up is that um, I spent a lot of time behind the scenes with some of these companies, especially Reddit, uh, who were full of these kind of techno-utopians and who kind of 
created the totally shaken up and, you know, flattened and kind of chaotic information conditions that we live with today. Now, Reddit is often criticized because it has anonymity, because everyone on there can choose to and often does choose to uh, hide behind anonymous avatars. That said, you know, there are other networks that insist on people using their real names, such as Facebook, and that doesn't seem to solve uh, really any of these problems. So anonymity certainly has something to do with it, but it is not, you know, the silver bullet. Even since you published the book, Facebook has come out as being um, unwilling to screen ads that uh, contain erroneous information, that uh, political ads the, with false claims are visible on that site every day in great numbers. Um, so that, in a, in a long way, proves the point you were making in the book, you know, a year or two before that story became public. You see developments like this again and again. When I use the term techno-utopian, it's not that I'm just generically critical of everyone who uses technology or profits from technology. Um, the question to me is, do these people cling to it in a kind of feverish, utopian way that blinds them to the evidence in front of them? When you see people who just have such blinding, axiomatic faith in the marketplace of ideas or in this notion that, you know, surely the next technological improvement will be the one that saves us from ourselves uh, <laughs> and that they just repeat that mantra again and again, no matter what the facts on the ground are. That's that's what I refer to as this dangerous form of utopianism. And that's exactly what you see in all kinds of developments, one of them being the one you mentioned, you know, well, yeah, surely things have gone wrong on our platform. But, you know, if we just allow people to see more, if we allow them to share more information, if we give more people a voice, you know, then surely everything will work out for the best. And it's kind of mind boggling that, that Facebook goes on saying this, given how many times it's proven not to be the case. But, you know, this is still their justification. Well, we have to let politicians lie in ads, because if we don't, then how will people know that politicians lie, are lying? I mean, it sounds absurd when you paraphrase it, but that is literally their argument. But I think it's clear, Andrew, that you demonstrate in the book that even if people aren't engaging in the kind of social interaction that we're talking about and, and getting into these chat rooms that advocate white supremacy or misogyny or any other number of characteristics, they are still being exposed to this philosophy. It's still affecting the kind of news they're hearing, and they may be being manipulated by it. Oh, yeah. It, it affects everything for everyone. I think that's one of the sort of rookie mistakes that I hear people making is sort of saying, well, yeah, I don't go on the quote unquote bad parts of the internet or, you know, I know social media is a problem, but, you know, I deleted my Facebook account. So, you know, it's not a problem that affects me. Um, and that just couldn't be farther from the truth. I mean, we live in a world that is completely saturated with this stuff in terms of the news you hear, in terms of what you're led to believe, in terms of who becomes president, in terms of what our climate change policies will or won't be. I mean, this is this is just how we communicate now. So there really is no opting out of it. One of the things I wanted to do in terms of the IRL uh, fly on the wall reporting is I, I really wanted to watch people, you know, kind of reverse engineer some of these systems, uh, because a lot of these people are kind of full of kind of bluster and self-importance. And I wanted to see how powerful they really were. I didn't want to just take their influence for granted. So one of the ways I did this is I kind of sat with many of them, more than a dozen of them, and over time kind of watched as these practices unfolded. And one of them, you know, I found myself 
before the 2016 election in a living room in Orange County, California, where I was sitting with a guy who, you know, was just like a like a freelance propagandist, basically. He was a fairly misogynist guy, although he was married and had a kid and, you know, was in his early 40s or I think late 30s at that point. But what he did essentially full time using uh, donations from his fans online and, you know, by monetizing a few uh, things he could sell, like uh, self-published books and things, he basically built a business hacking the daily news cycle and trying to spin it in his uh, dishonest direction. He would just sort of invite me to pull up a chair and I would just watch as he would do this, you know, he would sort of say, okay, I want to create a, an association in people's minds between Hillary Clinton and terrorism, let's say. That was one of the ones he was doing the day I was there. Uh, and, you know, I was there multiple days, but this happens again and again and again in his world. Um, and so he would just sort of say, okay, well, I'm going to start live streaming uh, a video. He would open this uh, live streaming app called Periscope, which is uh, owned by Twitter. And he would sort of get a thousand or two of his core followers into that video live stream. And together they would kind of crowdsource uh, a hashtag that they wanted to get going, you know, about Hillary loving terrorists or Hillary welcoming violence. You know, these things were not particularly tethered to reality, but they were kind of close enough to uh, to spark a kind of emotionally resonant reaction in people. And uh, emotionally resonant reactions are the lifeblood of the viral internet. This is the force that makes uh, internet memes pop and gain popularity. And that's how the social media algorithms are fundamentally built. So because he understood how those algorithms are built, he was able to get things trending all the time. Uh, once something was trending, it would then get picked up by journalists who would, you know, treat it sometimes critically, sometimes less critically, but they would, you know, repeat the talking point. And then it would jump to TV news. And then basically I could pick up the newspaper the next day and go, oh, yeah, this is being discussed in the newspaper because of the thing I watched this random guy do in his living room yesterday. My guest was Andrew Morantz, author of Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. The Jewish History Museum and the Jewish Federation of Southern Arizona present Andrew Morantz at the fourth annual Elizabeth Liebson Holocaust Remembrance Lecture. This presentation and community conversation takes place at the University of Arizona's Gallagher Theater on Thursday, February 13th. Ticket information is at jewishhistorymuseum.org. Now the final episode of a five-part Arizona Spotlight series, Youth Crossing Gender Borders. It explores the landscape of young people and gender identity. Laura Markowitz talks to teens, parents, and experts on the forefront of understanding. Transgender and gender non-binary people represent a small percentage of the population but they experience a disproportionately high rate of hate crimes committed against them. Why is gender identity so controversial? Laura Markowitz takes a closer look. 
gender is more than just a function of our biology or self-identity. It's woven into every part of our culture, fashion, laws, education. It's also embedded in our language. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I use she, her pronouns. I prefer masculine pronouns, he, him, his. I use they or she pronouns. I do he, him. Self-defining one's gender through pronouns is a relatively recent phenomenon that's gained popularity, especially on college campuses. Sherry Bauman is a professor of counseling at the University of Arizona, and she says our culture has always been fixated on gender. Very often the first question that's asked when a child is born, even before it's healthy, is it a boy or a girl? It's a very recent understanding that, well, it might be boy or girl, but it could be a variety of other possibilities. They might be transgender, which means their physical body doesn't match their inner gender identity. Or they might be gender non-binary, which means their gender is somewhere on the spectrum between male and female. Or they might be intersex. Intersex is rarely spoken about and actually is a, is a reasonably significant portion of the population. It's about as common as being born a redhead. Those are people who are either born with ambiguous genitalia or whose chromosomes don't match their external gender appearance. Bauman's point is that humanity has always included a wide variety of genders, not just female and male. But good luck trying to find a card for a newborn that isn't for a boy or a girl. We want black and white. Or pink and blue. And this is very gray. There's one more piece to consider in the gender puzzle. Rich Musinski is a clinical psychologist who specializes in gender identity issues. The phenomenon of gender like, includes people who are cisgender, and those are people who feel comfortable in the gender that they're assigned at birth. That describes the majority of people. Our society was designed for the cisgendered. Think of bathrooms and locker rooms, sports teams, and the myriad forms you have to fill out throughout your lifetime that only offer you the choices female or male. And the privilege of being cisgender is you get to be comfortable in who you are and your style of clothes, your way of being in the world, and no one questions that. Transgender and gender non-binary people are at a higher risk than any other minority group for discrimination, physical violence, and bullying. It starts as early as preschool. Sherry Bauman says a typical insult that kids use is to call a gender nonconforming child it. It makes you a thing. It makes you not even human. We talk about a process called moral disengagement, which is about allowing ourselves to violate our own principles. I mean, using an it, making them less than human, makes it okay to treat them badly. I don't want to be a bad person. I don't want to be an immoral person. But I've joined in on this, and what do I tell myself? Well, they're not really human. Humans are either male or female, so they're not. Almost 2% of high school students identify as transgender. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Their 2017 Youth Risk Behavior Survey found that 35% experience bullying, 27% feel unsafe at school, their tormentors are cisgender. So why do some cisgender people 
have such strong negative feelings about other people's gender expression. We're all fearful of something that we don't understand. Sherry Bauman and Rich Musinski and others believe that misinformation fuels transphobia. One example is the claim that critics make that when a child goes through a normal childhood phase, like wanting to be a tomboy for a year, activist doctors and parents will call it gender dysphoria and rush to put the child on hormones to turn them into the other gender. Marty Vandervoort is a counselor at the University of Arizona and says this is not the way it happens. Part of how we actually diagnose gender dysphoria in kids is the sort of the criteria of persistence, insistence, and consistence. If I don't grow out of my I want to be a boy phase, I'm likely a boy. Some of the most vocal critics say they don't dislike transgender people. They just don't believe transgender is a real thing. So therefore, they're against any laws that legitimize it. And in fact, some believe it's a dangerous fad caused by peer pressure and even parental pressure. Rich Musinski dismisses these arguments as more misinformation. Nobody can cause someone to be transgender. We know that transgender people and gender non-binary people have existed since the human beings have existed. It's in every culture and every historical period. The American Medical Association, the American Psychological Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and many other major health and mental health organizations recognize and affirm transgender people. You know, there's plenty of information that says this is a natural, normal part of the human experience for some people, and there's nothing to fear from transgender people. Researchers have been looking into the cause of gender dysphoria for decades. They've done studies of identical twins where one is transgender. They've done studies comparing the brain structures of transgender people to cisgender people. So far, there are only theories, but no answers. We don't know why this exists for some people, why, why this is part of the human experience. But I would say, who cares? It's time to accept that there are some people who are like this. But not everyone accepts it. There are those who believe that children can be guided away from their so-called gender confusion. Some claim that conversion therapies, also called reparative therapies, can turn those children into cisgender people. But conversion therapies have been widely discredited as false science. They're illegal in 18 states and more than 60 cities and counties. I used to get parents bringing their kids to me saying, make sure this kid isn't trans. You will do harm to children if you try to get them to change their gender identity. Conversion therapy has been shown to heighten the risk of suicide in young people. You're being told that you are a sinner or you're a pervert or you're a criminal for being just the way you are in the world. That's when we start seeing people get depressed, anxious, suicidal, angry. That's when we start seeing people say, I can't deal with this kind of discrimination against me and I am going to drop out of school, I'm going to, you know, use drugs. Musinski says support and affirmation are game changers. There's research that shows when parents support children when they come out, all those risk factors, they just drop precipitously. When I see parents support kids, like from the very beginning, those kids are doing well. They don't necessarily have depression or anxiety. They learn how to be proud. 
of who they are, because that's the antidote to the shame that people are made to feel. He says youth who cross gender borders have an important message for all of us. What transgender kids and gender non-binary kids are showing the world is that you could tell me who you think I am, but this is who I am, and this is what I'm good at, and this is what I enjoy doing, and it doesn't matter what body I'm in. This message might sound familiar. Women have been saying it for a long time. When a society or a culture starts saying that men are better than women, automatically there are rules, ideas, customs about what defines a man, what defines a woman. And then trans and gender non-binary people come along and they break those rules. They make the categories of masculine and feminine fluid and maybe meaningless. Musinski and others believe this may be the deep root of transphobia. One of the things that the transgender civil rights movement, I think, is going to add to the world and one of the gifts that they bring is to be able to have a new way of dismantling patriarchy and sexism. They are dismantling the very notion that men are better, that cisgender is better. But in the meantime, Republican lawmakers in a dozen states have introduced bills just in the last two months that would roll back rights of transgender people. In some states, parents would be reported to Child Protective Services for supporting their trans and non-binary kids. Doctors would be fined or jailed for administering hormone therapies. A law proposed in Arizona would prohibit school personnel from using a transgender youth's chosen name and pronouns. These young people already face significant obstacles to growing up to be happy and healthy human beings. And it's likely that they will continue to be at high risk as long as their lives continue to be up for debate. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. God fearing angel, where did you come from? You lost your wings years ago. Daddy hates you, cause you won't pray to a God that hates you anyways. Manufactured boy with your fractured soul, know you fear your God, cause you love him the most. No matter how much you pray for it all to go away, it's inside you. This concludes the series Youth Crossing Gender Borders. The music was written and performed by Noah James. To learn more about resources in Tucson for transgender youth and families, and to hear the other episodes, visit the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance from Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.